This episode is brought to you in part by Richmond Graduate University. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly. Richmond Graduate University can equip you to become a licensed professional counselor, integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. You're listening to Quick to Listen. Each week we go beyond hashtags and hot takes to discuss a major cultural event. I'm Morgan Lee, Associate Digital Media Producer here at Christianity Today, and I am joined by my friend and colleague, Caleb Lindgren. Hi there. Good to be on again. Hey, Caleb. I know. You're kind of familiar to everyone right now at this point. I hope so. Yeah. And so what do you do here? Just remind everyone. Yeah, I am the uh, Associate Theology Editor here at Christianity Today, and uh, I was sitting in your seat uh, a couple episodes ago. It was a little unnerving to see how well you did my job. <laughs> I'd be curious to hear what you thought. Absolutely. All right. Who's joining us today? Yeah. So today we are joined by Thomas Berg, who teaches uh, constitutional law at the University of St. Thomas in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Uh, he specializes in law and religion, intellectual property, and religious liberty. And he's written over 40 briefs on issues of religious liberty and free speech in the Supreme Court and lower courts. So he is uh, one of the nation's leading scholars of law and religion. And we're excited to have him on to talk about basically Donald Trump's pick for the Supreme Court. Brett Kavanaugh. Mm-hmm. Hey, Tom, how are you? Hi, good. How are you? Thank you for having me on. Welcome back to the show. Good to be here. Well, Tom, we are glad that you are back to join us today to talk about all things Supreme Court. And obviously, I think most of our listeners will be aware that there's been a lot of Supreme Court in recent weeks. And so we kind of wanted to break that down for everyone today. So let's get into it. Christian conservatives are cheering President Trump's decision to nominate Circuit Court of Appeals Judge Brett Kavanaugh to replace outgoing Supreme Court Justice Anthony Kennedy. The Southern Baptist Convention's ethic and religious liberty president, Russell Moore, called Kavanaugh a, quote, strong defender of the freedoms guaranteed by the Constitution and Bill of Rights, especially our first freedom of religious liberty. I pray that Judge Kavanaugh will serve for decades to come with a firm and unwavering commitment to our Constitution principles, said Moore. I join with Baptists and other evangelicals in calling upon the Senate to confirm Judge Kavanaugh without delay. Others applauding Kavanaugh's nomination included Focus on the Families, Jim Daly, and the American Center for Law and Justices, Jay Sekulow, and the National Hispanic Christian Leadership Conference President, Sam Rodriguez. Should Kavanaugh be confirmed, his presence will tilt the court further to the right, as he is considerably more conservative than the more centrist, swing vote conservative, Kennedy. A staunch defender of religious liberty, Kavanaugh has rejected challenges to prayers at the president's inauguration and the phrase, so help me God, in the presidential oath. Many political pundits have spent the last week speculating about how Kavanaugh might rule on abortion and whether Roe v. Wade could be reversed. But beyond Kavanaugh's individual legacy, what will a court with a conservative majority mean for Christian conservative values in the long term? We'll get into some of this today on Quick to Listen. Before we do have that discussion, though, I want to take some time to remind everyone that this podcast is made possible by all the subscribers out there of Christianity Today magazine. And we're right now in the middle of a July-August double issue. And Caleb, I think you are responsible for some of the articles that are in this issue. Yeah, I wanted to highlight one in particular um, by David McNutt, who is academic editor at University Press and also a professor at Wheaton College. And he wrote an article 
titled Evangelism and the Arts. And the idea is, can artists evangelize? What place does evangelism have in the life of a Christian artist? And what are the tensions that exist between artists regarding their faith and evangelism and then also their artistic expression? Um, In particular, he's looking at the way that artists might feel a tension between authentic artistic expression and the trying uh, to present a faithful portrayal of the gospel message. Um, How clearly can you present an evangelistic message through the arts? And in addition, with the magazine, we were able to coordinate with a number of different Christian artists, and we have beautiful pictures of some of the artwork that accompanies the article to kind of illustrate what he's talking about. So there's some really gorgeous art in here. He wrote a really compelling piece um, and was able to interview a number of the artists that we featured as well. And so I highly recommend it. It's really gorgeous. Yeah, this one is like totally worth getting the magazine itself Mm -hmm. for. And it's one of those things that you can do in a magazine in a kind of a unique way. So it's really awesome. Yeah. Don't read the online version of it. Anyway, I'm just saying you're doing yourself a disservice if you don't actually get a copy of the magazine. You can do that again by going to orderct.com slash quick to listen orderct.com slash quick to listen. And I think you all are really going to enjoy seeing this article, among others, the visual treatment of it, as what Caleb was saying. All right, Caleb. So now that you've done one of these shows, I pretty much assume that you're a veteran and that you know that we do gut checks, which is when, you know, you give that hot take opinion and tell us how you really feel. So when President Trump made his announcement last night to pick Brett Kavanaugh, did you have a hot take reaction to that? Um, my initial reaction was, who is Brett Kavanaugh? I, I've heard his name in this list of the four possible folks that uh, Trump might pick from, uh, but he was one of the unknowns on that list. We'd all heard a decent amount about Amy Coney Barrett because she was in the news during her confirm her previous confirmation for her current post. Um, and I'd heard of at least one other name, but Brett Kavanaugh was not one of the ones that I recognized. So I had to do some research. I had to find out what his deal was and why he was a candidate for the Supreme Court, why he was somebody that Trump was going to pick and why they they thought that Trump decided to pick him. If I recall, you did have some burning question, too, after Kavanaugh did get picked. I guess the burning question, I'm not sure the one you're referring to, but the burning question for me is related to the balance of the Supreme Court, related to the way that he's perceived as being quite a bit more conservative than Anthony Kennedy is. And so how is that affecting the balance of the Supreme Court? Was the Supreme Court balance left before? Was it fairly even? Um, is it like significantly more to the right if he gets confirmed? I'm curious. I honestly don't know. My gut check, I guess, is that, I mean, wasn't that surprised in the sense of it sounded like we we had the names and was just going to get who is going to get picked from the names that are there. He seems to have the credentials that most people would look on as favorable to, to be qualified for this particular post. I'm, I don't know. Whenever we're going to record a quick to listen episode, sometimes I just am like, maybe I'll hold back from having a hot take because I can just ask our expert all these questions that are going to be there. And in particular, I have so many questions about like where the future of the court is going to play out and what that's going to mean for evangelicals. It, it is interesting, though, just to hear when I, I was collecting responses last night and doing some reporting about all these conservative Christians who seem to unequivocally support Kavanaugh. And and basically because of this religious liberty 
angle, which I, I guess was kind of surprising to me, given that there are many reasons why one may judge if a judge is going to serve in favor or not. But almost every single response was like, yes, I'm so glad he's nominated. He's going to be great for religious liberty. And I was like, that's not all the justices rule on or decide. So why is that your own issue that you feel good about? But we'll get into all of that today. So, Tom, did you have a gut reaction to this appointment pick of Brett Kavanaugh? Yeah, he's a uh, strong conservative, but a mainstream kind of conservative as opposed to maybe someone who might be a bit more pure or um, what the uh, uh, what others might call radical. I mean, he's definitely a part of the D.C. establishment and has been there for 20, 25 years. And I think we can talk a little bit about his the opinions that um, people have focused on, but they show a kind of conservatism in results, but a a somewhat more moderate form than even perhaps other opinions written by other judges in those cases. But he's uh, certainly a strong conservative pick, highly credentialed, very um, well-respected, and with real testimonials to his his character and uh, integrity, too, from people like Michael Gerson. So... I think those speak well of him. I mentioned already that some people were excited about his appointment because of his record on religious liberty issues. Can you talk about his record on religious liberty and and kind of get into that a little bit more? Yeah. So um, I think the general sense is that he will be very strong on that issue. Um, And that's partly from personal biography. When he was in private practice before he went on the court, on the D.C. Circuit, he uh, volunteered pro bono on some religious liberty cases, including, as I remember, a case for a synagogue fighting a zoning uh, um, zoning restrictions. And he also chaired the religious liberty practice group of the Federalist Society, which is, as, as you know, the kind of conservative law and public policy group that has played a kind of a big role in in, uh, in vetting nominees. So he's got a, you know, it's pretty clear that there's some personal commitment to religious liberty there. So Judge, he heard some religion cases, as you as you mentioned. One of them was uh, one of the challenges to the Obamacare contraception mandate, where religious uh, nonprofits, colleges, and other nonprofits objected to that form that they had to submit to the government that would allow them to opt out and have their insurer provide the contraception coverage instead. And the uh, the court in in Kavanaugh's court, the D.C. Circuit, ruled that just submit, having to submit that form did not impose any burden on the religious liberty of the objecting organizations. And he wrote a, a really strong dissent from that. He pointed out that the organizations had sincerely concluded that submitting that form would violate their beliefs because it would involve them in facilitating contraception um, coverage. So he wrote a strong dissent, you know, emphasizing religious liberty. But some critics of his uh, on the right focused on the fact that he accepted in that the premise that providing contraception coverage was a very important government interest. And they didn't want him to make that concession. So some you know, during this fight between over, you know, which one of these four nominees would be the best. Some people actually call him squishy on the uh, religious liberty, which I think was was pretty unfair. He was a lower court judge arguing for his result within existing Supreme Court precedent. But 
it is one of a few things that shows he may be a, a conservative with some moderate inclinations. We talked about his religious liberty credentials. What about some of these other important Christian social conservative interests? The top top two for, I think, most people probably uh, abortion and religious liberty. He had a case in the D.C. Circuit uh, involving abortion. It was about the 17-year-old girl who crossed the border illegally and learned she was pregnant and sought an abortion, and that the Trump administration opposed uh, allowing her to go out uh, for an abortion um, from the detention place until she could, at least until she could find an immigration sponsor, or kind of almost a foster care family. So again, the Court of Appeals ruled in her favor, and again, it was Kavanaugh dissenting. But there was one dissent that was quite broad that said she was a foreigner with no connection to the U.S. other than having come in illegally. She had, so she had no constitutional right to an abortion, period. Kavanaugh dissented, but again, it was more narrow. He said, waiting on the abortion for several more days until she had a sponsor would not burden her abortion rights, as opposed to just saying she didn't have any in the first place. So again, people said he Critics on the right said, well, he could have written a much broader opinion. I think it tends to show uh, a careful judge who makes the claims, analyzes the claims that are presented to him by the parties. And as a lower court judge, followed Supreme Court precedent, but interpreted it in ways that would tend to, you know, not expand abortion rights. Uh, and I, so, you know, that, that he may behave differently as a Supreme Court justice where he's got a lot more room to to rule than as a lower court judge. But I do see uh, some element of, of a moderate uh, incremental kind of approach in him. Mm. So that moderate approach that may or may not be there in his rulings and his inclinations, do you think that's a, a benefit to the makeup of the Supreme Court? To return to that question that I had about balance, there's been a lot of concern from critics on the left that we're getting a fairly rightward-leaning court. And there's even been some concern among some evangelical Christian groups that we're sort of engaging in culture wars via the Supreme Court bench. So how do you think he's going to affect the makeup of the, of the Supreme Court? It's hard to say. It, it seems likely that um, this is a, a rightward shift from Justice Kennedy, who on some issues, particularly these issues that white evangelicals have focused on, uh, Kennedy was, you know, back and forth across the line between "quote unquote" liberal and "quote unquote" conservative. He was the swing justice. He actually probably voted on the conservative side more often uh, by a substantial margin in the overall number of cases. But on these, some of these major hot button areas like abortion and gay rights, he was "quote unquote." On the left, and I, I think we can expect some rightward shift. But you know, uh, justices also have a lot of reasons for proceeding with some caution in shifting the court and moving it again incrementally rather than than all at once. There. So if you if you look at the abortion area, um, you, you know to to overturn Roe versus Wade right away um, would be a very, very dramatic step. It would upset in the law, you know, referred to as reliance interests, uh, that people have, you know, much of the culture has sort of been grown up around a, a reproductive rights, as they call them, for, for women. 
and you could want to, you know, undo that whole legal setup in one fell swoop, or you could say, you know, let's moderate it more. Let's allow more regulations on abortion. Let's take, you know, the the interest in unborn life more more seriously and give the states more room to regulate it. And you might lead, either lead up to overruling it, or perhaps, uh, you know, the court would, would never completely overrule abortion rights altogether. And even conservative justices are going to feel some inclination to go slow. And they have, they have, there are a lot of ways for the court to proceed incrementally. So the idea that, that, you know, at the first chance, these five justices are just, you know, basically panting to overrule Roe completely is, I think, quite unrealistic. So one of the other names on Trump's shortlist had been Amy Coney Barrett, who was a favorite of many social conservative groups. What was kind of your reaction, Tom, to seeing her not get the nomination? You know, uh, I shared uh, David French, a conservative writer, um, did an op-ed in The Washington Post saying um, Barrett was a missed opportunity. And I, I really had very much that same Sense. All of these shortlisted nominees, I think, would have been pretty similar in their likely views about, you know, methodology of constitutional interpretation and what that's going to lead to in terms of religious liberty and abortion and maybe uh, the Affordable Care Act and, and so on. But Amy Barrett, as a as a person, um, I think, um, would have raised some really interesting uh, discussions that would that I think would have been helpful to have. She's a, a a brilliant woman with pro-life convictions and a mother of seven, including two adopted kids. She would have called into question, if not undercut, this sort of uh, the simplistic narrative that you know opposition to abortion is a a male view. It's meant to block women's empowerment. You know, she would just be she would she would stand as a, as a just a counterexample. To that, and and I don't think her personal conviction, her I mean, her personal convictions about abortion would not be the reason that she would cut back on abortion rights, because that is a jurisprudential matter about interpreting the Constitution. But I do think that cutbacks would have more credibility. Cutbacks on abortion rights would have more credibility if the majority making them included um, a female justice, not just five men with the three women on the court all arrayed on the other side. And then finally, there was this, as you mentioned, kind of the dust up over Democrats' attacks on her personal faith uh, last year, like when Senator Feinstein said, the, the dogma lives loudly within you, the thing that became a, yeah, I remember that. a meme and they sold T-shirts and stuff. So I think a lot of social conservatives hope that a Barrett nomination would kind of force that issue and kind of expose some senators as prejudiced against traditional faith, which I, I think is a fair, a fair reading of at least a couple of them. So it was a missed opportunity, I think, to kind of shake up some of the assumptions that are made in our polarized political culture right now. Can you see why she might have been passed up? Yeah, I mean, who knows? Who knows why a president makes exactly makes a decision? Who knows why President Trump makes decisions? Fair point. You know, there were certainly reasons uh, not to choose her, um, you know, why one of the others would be best. I think a lot of conservatives felt, felt all four of these shortlisters were were fine, and it was just a question of which would be, be the best. And 
you could say she had less experience than the others. She had some academic writings about precedent that could have given more ammunition to attack her. She took a uh, what, what she called a, a weak presumption of following precedent in constitutional cases, which, you know, I could imagine Susan Collins saying, well, you know, here's your smoking gun. Could you unpack that terminology, weak presumption? When we talk about precedent or stare decisis, as lawyers love to use Latin, right? Um, the The thing stands. That basically means a court in some cases or judges will follow a previous decision, even if they think it was wrongly decided in the first place. Um, as uh, Justice Brandeis once said, it's better to have the law settled in many cases than it is to have it settled correctly. You know, the most important thing is stability in many cases. Now, that's not always true, however. Clearly, we need to correct some wrong decisions. Exhibit A number one, Brown versus Board of Education overruled the previous decision. And of course, a lot of people would say Roe fits in that same category. So there's some presumption that you don't overrule a previous decision unless it's really wrong or it's been really pernicious or caused damage. And uh, the stronger that presumption is, you know, then the more you're going to adhere to previous decisions. She's argued for a weaker form of stare decisis or of, of precedent, which would be, you know, there's a little bit of a thumb on the scale of following previous decisions, uh, but not as much as some other people would argue for. Uh, and just, you know, on Part of the problem is you, you write things as an academic, and you know there are the words there. You're exploring ideas, you're raising things, and and any uh, any staff person who who wants to give grounds for opposing your nomination can um, can pick out um, the words that could be used against you. And 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 if the problem for somebody like Susan Collins is well, she can't, she doesn't have the smoking gun to show that Brett Kavanaugh would overrule Roe. But she might be able to point to Barrett's writings as providing the smoking gun. I want to switch gears a little bit and talk about history, I guess, when it when it comes to this. Tom, I'm wondering if you could maybe tell us five or six of the biggest Supreme Court rulings for Christian social conservatives since Roe versus Wade. Just some of like the legacies of the court that maybe having a more conservative slanted court might be able to undo. It is a fact that uh, abortion, same-sex marriage, or gay rights more generally, and religious freedom have been the big ones that evangelicals have focused on. And, and the same-sex marriage de- uh, decision, Obergefell 2015, is clearly a, a very dramatic Supreme Court decision, five to four, with Justice Kennedy as the swing vote. Uh, Kennedy was also the swing vote on abortion restrictions. Uh, he said the basic right to a- abortion he, uh, should be reaffirmed, but various kinds of regulations, including, for example, the regulation on, so- on so-called partial birth abortion, that federal statute he voted to approve or uphold. So it was which way Kennedy landed was the answer on these things, on both of these questions. I actually think on gay marriage and gay rights, it seems to me very unlikely that the court will overrule those decisions. A conservative originalist jurisprudence probably wouldn't have reached those decisions in the first place on gay rights. But undoing them, kind of given how the country has shifted, would be, I think, very un- 
unpopular. And in a practical terms, you know, how, what would the Supreme Court do if, if they said, you know, that states are no longer required to recognize same-sex marriage? You have tens of thousands of same-sex couples have already married. Their marriages cannot be undone. They are vested rights. So now would you have some couples married and, and in some states then new same-sex couples couldn't marry? I just don't think that that's at all likely to, to happen. It seems very unlikely to me. Um, but a court, you know, the, when the court shifts to the right on, on these issues uh, or, or in the so-called conservative direction, the, the difference really will be not in overturning gay marriage, but in protecting the religious liberty claims on the other side. I do think that those uh, will be, you know, even more strongly protected than they have been now. And of course, those religious freedom issues like the Baker, the Religious Adoption Agency and so on were key, a key motivator for evangelicals supporting Trump. Um, And so he's he's delivering with his Supreme Court appointments on that first uh, Neil Gorsuch and now likely Brett, uh, Brett Kavanaugh. Abortion, as I said, I think is a is a harder question. Uh, you know, it, I, I could imagine it Roe being overruled down the line, but I don't imagine it happening right away. And I don't, and I think there's a real question about whether it would happen with only, only a five to four vote, um, which is where we, where we would stand right now. John Roberts has shown a tendency to not want the court to make very controversial decisions by five to four. He's been interested in getting more consensus than that. And so I would expect cutbacks on abortion rights certainly to come for a while before there was any overturning the basic right. If, if that ever happens, you know, I mean, if, if evangelicals, white evangelicals think Roe is about to be overturned, you know, they are, that's being oversold to them. If the likelihood of Roe being overturned is fairly low, at least for the, you know, for now. I'm yeah. not saying not down the line, but, 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 you know, down the line, maybe if there are more justices, you know, who are against Roe. I guess the question I would have is under what conditions would a ruling like that be reversed and how, like, what would the process be for that to occur? Or there be pending cases that would come through that would question that or give opportunity for a more conservative court to rule in that way? Yeah. At any time, a state could, you know, that wants to push the issue, could, you know, let's say a state wants to make abortion illegal after 10 weeks or eight weeks um, or whatever, when you, have a, when you have a fetal heartbeat or or uh, the earliest time of reactions to any pain or something like that. You know, if the state does that now, the lower courts are going to strike that down immediately. And because their their job, their duty is to follow existing Supreme Court precedent. And it's, it is not permitted for them within their rules to anticipate that the Supreme Court will be going in a different direction just because there's a new justice on the court. You know, they have to follow the precedent as it stands. So I think if, if, if this happens now, if a, if a you know, very restrictive ban gets passed in a state, the lower courts will strike it down, and I suspect the court will see no reason to, to, to intervene for that kind of case. But you, as I said, cutting back is a different matter. So we've got issues, for example, what about what about late-term abortion bans? What if we're talking about uh, 20 weeks instead of 22, which is where basically the law stands now? Uh, there's a lot of talk in Congress and in states about 20-week bans, and some have been passed in various states. I could imagine the court 
being more favorable towards upholding those in the first uh, in in the next few years. What about sex selection bans? There was one in Indiana that was struck down, but you know maybe the this court might go in a, a different direction on that. It's certainly more likely to be sympathetic to protecting the conscience of nurses or business owners or others who object to participating in abortions. So there's a lot of ways in which the court can move the law, keep using this word incrementally, more than, you know, kind of swallowing the whole thing in one in one bite. This episode of Quick to Listen is brought to you by the Christian Standard Bible, a translation that is both faithful to the original languages and really easy to read. Today, we are talking with Michael Card. He is a singer and songwriter, and he served as a stylist for the Christian Standard Bible. Hey, Mike, how are you? I'm doing good, Maury. From a literary perspective, Mike, what book of the Bible is the most interesting to you? It's kind of a tie between John and Luke, but I, I really do love Luke. And the reason I love Luke is you really get the sense of Luke's voice. It's very distinctive. His vocabulary is very distinctive. And of course, we know that he is, he's not an eyewitness, so he's collecting eyewitness testimonies, which adds another la- layer of kind of complexity and, and, and uh, fascination to his book. And really, kind of, probably the book of the Bible that I, I resonate with the least is Matthew, because I don't sense that voice in Matthew. And a lot of people don't even think Matthew wrote Matthew. They think someone else did, and he collected the sayings of Jesus and provided those. You can learn more about the Christian Standard Bible at csbible.com slash ct. This episode is brought to you in part by Seattle's Union Gospel Mission. Over 13,000 people in the Seattle area are homeless. Kathy is one of many who found a new life through Seattle's Union Gospel Mission. Growing up, my dad and I didn't get along. I kept running away from home until one time I was assaulted. After that, I carried a lot of pain inside of me, and I was doing a lot of drugs. I became homeless. It's taken me almost 40 years to get the healing I needed, but all along, God was looking out for me. He led me to the mission, and the mission has helped me in all kinds of ways. I've learned how to set boundaries and say no. Now I'm looking forward to working for the mission. I want people to know there's hope out there. God can help you heal. And grace will lead me home. To hear more, volunteer, or donate, visit UGM.org. Tom, a couple weeks ago on the podcast, we actually talked about the Supreme Court because of this whole Christian Baker religious freedom conscious issue that was um, decided a couple weeks ago. And the guest that we had on just talked about her own desire to see LGBT rights and religious freedom rights. See, see activists from both sides try to come to some sort of compromise. I'm curious if you think that there's going to be any more incentive for those on the religious freedom side to come to any type of compromise with the LGBT groups. Yeah, well, I've been making those same arguments. I filed a brief in the cake shop case arguing for protecting both sides. I think there are good reasons for the two sides to negotiate the way, for example, they did in Utah. And uh, Deep Red Utah now has general protection for LGBT people in employment and housing. 
and it's got strong protections for religious organizations and even for individuals in private businesses from being fired because the you know their boss doesn't like their view about marriage issues one way or the other i mean these are these are great protections and they came out of one of the most you know one of the most republican states in the country not a, not an evenly divided state politically so i you know i think it is possible but it's uh it's very hard because there's almost no trust between the major groups on either side. Each group has kind of said, well, you know, we might be able to win this whole this whole thing. Um, gay rights groups, I think, for a while thought the courts would rule everything in their favor, and so they wouldn't have to, to give at all. And then, well, then President Trump got elected, and now you've got two, well, probably two Supreme Court justices who are going to move the the thing the other way. So a lot of this has to do with what groups believe, you know, what how strong they believe their negotiating position is. This um, movement of the Supreme Court has weakened the negotiating posture of the of gay rights groups, and whether that will, you know, help make a fairness for all solution more more available, I, I guess we'll just have to see. Tom, for white evangelicals that may not have felt entirely comfortable with Trump's character, but nevertheless decided that they were going to vote for him because of issues dealing with the Supreme Court, they've got to feel like they've had enormous amounts of success in the short term in achieving that goal. I'm wondering if you see any long-term trade-offs or consequences. You can only accomplish so much through the court alone without having some success in moving the broader culture as well. Number one is, you know, in many cases, all the Supreme Court can say is that this issue goes back to the political branches. Abortion, you know, they will say it's back to the states uh, to decide what to do about this. And so, you know, if you if you are pro-life and you want to restrict abortion dramatically, you're going to have to win in state legislatures. So it's also true that the culture and politics matter more. You know, the court is not the only thing by any means. Another reason that's true is because in the long run, the Supreme Court tends to reflect the larger currents of public opinion. You know, presidents get to a point and Senate gets to confirm. And having the presidency and Senate in the hands of Republicans uh, mattered. But if it's in the hands of Democrats, then it's, it's going to go, it may go the other way. We got to remember, social conservatives really dodged a bullet about the Supreme Court here. Uh, President Obama would have been able to swing the court the other way if Merrick Garland had replaced Antonin Scalia. And when the Republicans refused to act on Garland in 2016, before the election, they took a huge gamble on Trump winning, and that gamble, you know, barely paid off in the um, electoral college. So social conservatives will remain very vulnerable if they're tied solely to Republicans, as seems kind of likely for the future, and if Democrats win elections over time. You can't just rely on the court and you can't simply rely on a party to deliver you the court over and over again. You know, another thing about the Supreme Court is that actually at times, court rulings on one way, one side of an issue um, giving one side a win have actually empowered the other side politically, and we've seen that in abortion. Roe versus Wade was a great blow to the pro-life movement, but it also 
galvanized it and made it grow. Pro-choice groups scored electoral victories when abortion rights seemed under threat in the in the late 1980s. And we might see that happen again in 2018 and 2020, uh, unless pro-life people make a convincing case to swing voters that we need to temper or move back or, or cut back some on this, this very broad abortion rights position. And, and, you know, just, I mean, just to bring up one other thing, you know, we, we've been talking about white evangelicals, but what about black evangelical Christians and Hispanic evangelicals? Socially conservative, Sam Rodriguez is very happy about, about Brett Kavanaugh, but a lot of, you know, black and, and Hispanic brothers and sisters will will not um, appreciate other things that the that the conservative court is likely to do. The you know these the, these justices are are more likely to restrict affirmative action. They're more likely to um, you know reject claims of voting rights. And you know I think the di- the divide between white and black Christians um, you know is al- already keep keeps getting deeper. Um, people share such strong gospel beliefs and 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 such in many cases beliefs about kind of conservative social values but then so divided over other issues and the supreme court's going to decide a lot of those issues too those you know questions about racial justice and police um, misconduct and so on white evangelicals haven't seen those as part of their agenda um, but is it very short-sighted, just in a pragmatic sense, to not see those as part of their agenda. To say nothing of the, you know, the the matters of, of principle and justice that they that they raise too. And again, the demographics are are still still changing, and white evangelicals will be a smaller and smaller part of America. Many many people coming into this country as immigrants will be born again Christians, but that doesn't translate into agreement on the other issues, you know, outside of abortion or the social issues like that. And uh, it's sad to see the church divided on so many of those other things and claims of justice. Yeah, I actually think that was a little bit why I was surprised by this unabashed support for Kavanaugh from so many social conservatives, because, like I said, the court does rule on a whole host of things. And the fact that there wasn't necessarily even qualified support for him when many um, evangelicals of color are going to feel apprehension about um, how the court might rule on issues that are really important to them was was kind of like striking and surprising to me and made me wonder the extent to which, you know, Supreme Court victories for white evangelicals could come at a larger cost to, to church unity, which, you know, it's, it's not just the Supreme Court. This is what has been happening since the 2016 election. There are a lot of things that could be going on there that Certainly, a lot of accusations of uh, white ethnic nationalism and, and so on. I, I don't know how much to, to credit that. Um, it's probably it's certainly some of that going on. But one thing I do definitely see is just a real fear about what a Clinton presidency would have meant and what Clinton judges would have meant. So this focus on religious liberty as the first question is people saying, you know, if our institutions our Christian colleges in California or our adoption agencies uh, lose their tax-exempt status or lose their accreditation or lose their ability to adopt, then, you know, we just can't do the work 
that we're called to do. And um, that, you know, has sort of overridden for people a lot of these other issues. Um, I think it's understandable, but I think there's also a need to not just act based on fear and to act based on, um, you know, service and, and, and reaching out to, because even if there's ground, some grounds for fear to, to just uh, react solely on the basis of fear, um, I think drives other people away in the long run. I'm not saying that's an easy thing for evangelical leaders to negotiate at all. You know, some do very well. Russell Moore is a great defender of Kavanaugh, as you said, but he's also spoken out about protecting Muslims and about racial justice and taking the heat for it, too. So people are trying to walk those difficult lines. But um, I really wish that, that they hadn't been, that Democrats hadn't put evangelical leaders in the position of being so fearful about what would happen to their institutions. There's been a lot of concern in Christian higher education circles about how legislation might affect their ability to achieve uh, accreditation or different hiring decisions. And I imagine this appointment will probably affect those concerns as well. How do you see that likely playing out? The religious liberty questions are actually a, like like that one, Christian colleges and so on, accreditation, um, are actually a little bit more complicated to predict how so-called conservatives and so-called liberals vote. You know, one of the most consequential Supreme Court decisions of the last 30 years was the Supreme Court's decision in the peyote case called Smith about the meaning of the free exercise of religion clause of the First Amendment. And in that case, written by Justice Scalia, the court took what appeared to be at least uh, a quite narrow uh, understanding of the free exercise right when a law comes in, when when, um, religion comes in conflict with a generally applicable law, like an accreditation requirement might count as a, you know, a rule that every college has to apply. And, and Justice Scalia would say, you don't get exempted from that just because you have a religious reason for objecting to it. He, Justice Scalia and other conservatives have kind of continued to adhere to Smith. But it's Smith that, that peyote case, that's what kind of helped land us in, in many of these political battles over religious freedom because it said there's no constitutional right here and we're going to leave it to the state legislatures to decide. So in a college case like you're kind of uh, talking about, it depends on whether the accrediting state has a strong religious freedom provision or not. And if it doesn't, like California, where this issue came up, doesn't have a very strong religious freedom provision. Um, they're, they're, you know, the colleges have uh, have have uh, some weak, some real weaknesses in their in their case, and unless the conservative justices are interested in overruling or changing the Smith decision substantially, the Peyote decision, they may not help the the colleges too much uh, in in a case like that. The reason why, um, for example, the contraception case was why there was a ground for objecting to the contraception mandate was because it was a federal law. And the Federal Religious Freedom Restoration Act prevents federal laws from burdening religion, but that doesn't apply necessarily to to state laws. So there'd have to be some changes, I think, in the way conservative judges think about the free exercise 
provision of the First Amendment um, before you could say that this religious liberty protection would really be broad across the board. I understand this is speculative, but do you think a lot of those fears that were being trumpeted, do you think there was credibility to that? How do you think, like what, what would a more calm assessment of a bench decided by a Hillary Clinton presidency be? You would likely have justices who were just less sympathetic to people who raise religious objections to anti-discrimination laws. If, if, a, if a case involved an anti-discrimination claim, the, the justices that, that will come out of most Democratic presidents now will, will tend to side you know, much more strongly with those claims. Two justices in the cake shop case, Kagan and Breyer, Democratic appointees, they actually ruled for the, for the baker, but they did so on very narrow grounds that wouldn't protect them in many, many other cases. And, and so it's not just justices, but also I think we, we, we know now that whoever, whatever administration is elected, um, there's a tendency to put um, ideological people into the executive branch in departments like HHS that are carrying out these programs that are right on the forefront of the culture wars. And so you'd expect Planned Parenthood people to end up in HHS under a Clinton administration. And you'd expect some efforts to restrict the conscience of anti-abortion people through, you know, through HHS, through funding, through rules and so on. So it'd be as much in the executive branch as it would be in the, in the courts. I think there were real concerns, probably, you know, as always in politics, overstated some, but, but some real concerns. Tom, this analysis has been fantastic. Thank you so much for once again, giving us such a broader perspective and context for what's going on in the Supreme Court right now. As a reminder, everyone that has feedback for our discussion, you can give that to us on Twitter. We're at CT Podcasts, or you can send us an email. We're at podcast at christianitytoday.com. All right, now's the time of the show that we call Precious Moments, which is when everyone gets to share something that has brought them joy in the past week. You ready to go, Caleb? I am going to be moving soon, and that's been weighing on my mind, but I was able to sign a lease yesterday to move, um, which if you guys have ever moved, and I know most folks have, it's really stressful. And so have some of those decisions settled is really nice. And then you can get into the fun part of planning, like, okay, well, now can sort of think about the arrangement of the new place you can sort of plan like oh and then maybe i can go and get this thing to help spruce up the new the new spot um so it kind of moves from a period of stress and uncertainty to a period of like hope and expectation which is always always good so that's nice to have that one caleb did you finally decide to come to your senses and move to chicago i did not i'm sorry sorry morgan it's very disappointing Uh i know you're happy living the suburban life but not have been happier in chicago not all the time. The, the The city does appeal to me in some specific ways, but I think I am stuck in the suburbs, at least for now. Probably as much by temperament as anything else. Just say rooted. rooted? Stuck is... <laughs> yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. All right. Where can we find you, Caleb? Here. You can read uh, articles marked theology or biblical studies um, on the top. Um, those are things that I'm working on. And then also I very, very infrequently tweet 
at C. Adams Lindgren. One place you tweet way more is our Christian History Twitter account. That's true. Yeah, I also manage the Christian History Twitter account, which is a misspelling of Christian History because we didn't have enough characters. So it's C-H-R-S-T-I-A-N-H-I-S-T-O-R-Y. And that's uh, sort of your daily dose of Christian History. We got like this day in Christian History and links to great articles in our archives. All right, Tom, you ready? I actually have a uh, show coming up. I'm an actor and singer, um, a fan of Gilbert and Sullivan, which I know Caleb has had some experience with, as well Mm -hmm. as other kinds of musical theater. I will be playing uh, opening July 20th in Osseo, Minnesota, which is just outside the Twin Cities, uh, playing the Major General in the Pirates Ah. of Penzance. This a is, classic. you know, I am the very model of a modern major general. I have information, vegetable, animal, and mineral, and all of that stuff. Um, it's put on by the Cross Community Players, which is a community theater group that includes charitable service in its mission statement. They collect uh, canned goods, other foods, and school supplies for food shelves and schools, and they donate a percent uh, at every at, at performances, and they donate a percentage of ticket sales too. So um, they are at crossplayers.org. And if you're in the Twin Cities and want to go see Pirates of Penzance. um, See our guest live on the stage. Yeah. (laughs) That's awesome. Very cool. So that's that's my, yeah, Twitter. um, I tweet at uh, T-C-B-E-R-G-M-N, T-C-B-E-R-G-M-N for Minnesota. And I'm on a blog of law professors that does um, Catholic and other kinds of legal theory. It's called Mirror of Justice, and it's mirrorofjustice.blogs.com. So Mirror of Justice, just like it sounds, .blogs.com. Very cool. My precious moment is that I am on the Young Professionals Board with this nonprofit that is located in my neighborhood. I live on the west side of Chicago, which is a part of the town that has seen better days. Um, But this nonprofit does a lot of community development in my neighborhood. And every Friday this year, they're doing something called Home Court, which is dinner plus outdoor games slash basketball tournament. And it lasts for a couple hours on Friday night. And so I went and volunteered there and ran. I was, I was, I guess this is the best term to call. I was a bouncer for the bounce house, you know, like a <laughs> bounce house bouncer. Yes. I was literally making sure that no more than four children or five children, I don't know, were in there at any given time and then trying to time how long everyone could be in there so everyone got a chance to go in the jump house. Now confess, how, how often did you sneak in and yeah. bounce? Never. I never did. It was disappointing. But, you know, once you go inside, then, like, you're afraid that, like, mayhem is going to let loose. And there was really high demand. The, I did end up hula hooping a lot. There were a lot of hula hoops out there. And I got to watch one kid who was just pathetic at hula hooping at the beginning learn how to hula hoop, which was very... Did you help him? Yeah. the extent that I could. But I, like, love hula hooping. I think it was, like, really fun. So that, that was enough entertainment for me. And it's just great to see this nonprofit care and love my neighborhood so much so i really appreciated that people can find me on twitter at m-e-p-a-y-n-l all right that is it for us this week thank you everyone for listening to another episode of quick to listen this podcast is made possible by everyone who subscribes to christianity today magazine and you can do that by going to orderct.com slash quick to listen thanks for everyone who rates and reviews this show on apple podcasts it's also the place that you can get 
this podcast. We're also available almost everywhere else that you can get your podcast. So check us out there and we will see you all next week.